Conversation with H. I'm H, as you should already know, and I have an amazing family who I've known for decades. Long time. Like, long time. It's been a while. <laughs> Four black millennial siblings that we're going to speak to. Um, so we've got Stones, we've got Selena Stone, Daniel Stone, Matthew Stone, and Joanna Stone. You get me recently engaged, but big, big, big. So, for those who don't know who you guys are, I'm gonna go in age order. Just give a little bit of piece about yourself and what you do. Do you wanna? Oh, we're starting with the youngest. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Joanna. Um, I'm 25 years old. Uh, I, I work as a financial planning and analyst um, so I've been working in finance since I was about 18 um, and yeah I've been at, at my current job for about two years um, and yeah I think that's all really. Hey everyone I'm Matt Stone, I'm 29 years old, uh, currently working as a community navigator for the VRU, that's a violence reduction unit, um, kind of one of the uh, uh, partners with the police crime commissioner in Birmingham, been working there for around I think five months. Uh, really good work, um, and I hope to make a difference in the community. Genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that a word? That's a word, isn't it? That's a good word, still. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm uh, Daniel, um, 31 years old, a project manager um, at the University of Birmingham, uh, social activist, author. <laughs> author, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let them know. Let them know. All good bookstores after Oxford. Yeah, and I guess as like Matthew and I was saying, kind of yeah, very much committed to using time, effort to to try to make a difference in this world. So. I'm just so proud of us. Um, <laughs> I'm Selena. <laughs> I'm the oldest. I'm 32 years old. Um, I'm an academic, so about to submit my PhD in the next two weeks. Um, I'm a scholar in religion, theology, social justice, love community, um, love faith, and critically reflecting on faith, particularly Christian spirituality and theology, like making trouble where I can. Uh, that's me, really, I think. Facts, facts, that's facts, definitely facts. So, what was it like growing up in a household with four siblings, essentially seven years apart? Man, it was really good. Like it's only when, like, I think now that we're older and we're quite close in age, and now that like my friends are having kids, I realised like how mad it was to have four kids so close together. Yeah, because it was like me, then next year Daniel, a couple years later Matt, then Joe, a few years after that, and it's just like that's a lot of kids. But for us, it was just fun. It was fun. Too. I'm sure, like for our parents, it was like stress, yeah. um, particularly for Dad. But I feel like for us, it was like we just got we've got friends who are siblings and we were really close so we grew up really close mm. shared everything i think our parents had a general philosophy of they're just going to share everything and we're not going to do for one what we can't do for all of them mm. so it was like everything was quite fair yeah. um 
we enjoyed like summer holidays and like, like our mom was a stay-at-home mom mm. for a lot of our childhood so I mean having four kids it's trying to get childcare for four kids is mad so I think they decided it was better for my mom to be at home so she quit her job when I was born and they did little bits of like courses and work in between mm. but we had a lot of fun at, at home really mm. like coming home from school doing homework like we were all at school at similar times apart from me and joe he always missed each other (laughs) like i was in year seven when she was in reception at primary school then i left sixth form when she started in secondary school but i think we had like so many moments of just like jokes (laughs) and especially summer holidays of like trips to the library baking in the house painting family holidays, just like so many good memories. It was really wonderful. So, so what would you say is one of your, you guys' favourite memories growing up? Loads, isn't it? There's loads. I feel yeah. like for me, the, the favourite has to be when we went to Jamaica. That to me was favourite. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. That was because, good. you know, we weren't that sort of family that were going two holidays a year, skiing, everything, do you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it was skiing, quite rare. You know. Do you know what I mean? So... When, when we got the opportunity to go to Jamaica, I remember my mom was so determined to go because my dad was a bit like, it's a lot of money, you know, you know, four kids, that's like six people. But um, my mom was so determined and honestly, it was the best holiday. Like, you know, being on the beach, meet, meeting like our grandparents who like, like we hadn't like met before and, you know, mm. seeing family that, that we hadn't seen and just getting in touch with our culture was so, was so good. It was just so much. That fun. was a big, yeah, yeah. That, that was a big, I think like the fact that we didn't have kind of like wealth in terms of monetary wealth, but we had like so much fun. Um, we had like cousins who were similar ages as well. So like, yeah, even, yeah. you know, we could kind of go to their houses, we could have um, fun. So like Jess, who was on the show a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, man, she was like, she was, she, she didn't hyper from day. So was that <laughs> she saw, name Jess. Um, Bria, you know, and like the list, the list goes on. So I think we we're able to just kind of use what we had, which was our creative mind to like build like forts in the house mm. and like play like battleships and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then the mid- midnight feasts. So I don't know if you guys. Oh are. my god! <laughs> midnight feasts, you know. Midnight, no, never midnight. Nah. <laughs> but we used to like oh buy. God buy like food, like sausage rolls, like crisps, sweets, and we just watch a film or we just talk and play games mm. um, in one of our rooms. Um, and it was just, it was just amazing, like just to like have friends in your family. Mm. I totally forgot that man, the midnight feast. Yeah, man. Big. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> do, do you guys remember, I used, to, I used to make like a poster and he used to give it out to oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marketing. Tonight, <laughs> you know? Joe was out here marketing. Marketing the midnight <laughs> feast. The midnight, the, the midnight the feast that went. Like, yeah. I could sit on the door, that kind of thing. Be like, get your, get your money yeah. together, we're going to get the sweets. So you did. These times, the, these times, the midnight feast weren't at midnight, you know, but somehow, <laughs> Joe's doing promotion for midnight feast. Yeah. <laughs> all of you are very different very different so how did you remain unique in a household where you you have your first set of friends which is essentially brothers and sisters but then you're all got your own little quirks and things about you so how do you remain unique in that kind of in a household like that yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we actually did one of those like uh, personality tests. Um, oh wow! <laughs> which 
kind of actually improved just kind of how different. So I think me and Matthew, for example, were the complete opposite on that spectrum when it came to like extroversion, introversion, everything. Like we were opposite. Yeah. Um. So so, so I think you're right. Like we were kind of different people, kind of grow, growing up. Um. But I think for all of us, there wasn't that sense of competition or envy or because that, that's where where some of the problems come sometimes. If people yeah. kind of have some of those attitudes and that mm. makes you want to beat your sibling or outdo them or whatever. Um, but, but I don't think that was our experience. I think we kind of, both as individuals, uh, had that sense of actually seeing other people's strengths and not being, uh, and not feeling kind of jealous or envious about that. Mm. Um, but I think our parents also helped because our parents very much kind of with us growing up was as well as kind of wanting us to do well in school and stuff. For, for them, it's really important that we were developing into good people mm-hmm. who were well-rounded, who, who kind of had good uh, characters. And so a lot of actually what they challenged us about as people grow, kind of growing up individually and as siblings was kind of how we were relating to other people. And I think that probably meant that we were actually growing into people who knew how to get along well with other, with other people. Mm-hmm. One, of the things, one of the things I would ask then on top, on the back of that question is that how you saw your parents then as you got older, did it change over time? Like, for example, with my dad, I'm like, my dad could do nothing wrong when I was younger. He was that guy. Then all of a sudden I get older and I'm thinking, hold on, you're making a few mistakes, big man. What's, 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 what's what's going on here? What what happened to the the cloak of not being able to make no mistakes? So how did that, how did that change? How did your opinions and views of your parents change? I'm happy to start and then allow the other. But I think I think for us. But it's getting bit mad. This is getting mad. Be careful, you Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. So I think for us, and I think as Sal said, like mom was the one who kind of was at home and spending a lot of time with us, yeah. so kind of throughout the holidays, after school, stuff like that, and just I think her her kind of nature as well was somebody who was very much. Uh, he would come alongside you and kind of have quiet words and do all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and I guess like other Caribbean households, and it's like your dad sometimes the one who, who you're told to fear. Yeah, so so you know yeah. if you've been in trouble, it's exactly. like wait until your dad exactly. comes home. Yeah. And then... <laughs> so so I think there was that kind of attitude where it's just like, yeah, our dad is the one who's there to enforce certain things, and then our mom's the one who we, we then can kind of almost be more more open and, and kind of friendly with. Yeah, um, to a certain extent. But then I think as, but I think you're right. The difference as you get older is that you then start to understand things from their perspective. Um, so, so as I was saying, to kind of have four kids under a certain age um, and to not have like a huge salary and have to juggle all of that while having to, to manage kind of you know, your mortgage and bills and shopping and four kids. Mm. Like you understand the pressure that that was put on my dad kind of, being the primary kind of breadwinner in our household. Mm. So, so, so I think you probably just start to look at things through a different lens and, and actually see some of the, the challenges of, of, that, of that sort of experience. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Because I, I think those times when we, when we was younger that we, we just thought dad was being mean. You know, sometimes mm. he'd, he'd be like, oh, oh why, why, have you, why have you got this light on? You don't need that on. Oh, turn, <laughs> turn, turn off the switch, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And then, or sometimes I'd be like, oh, can I, can I have like, 20 pounds, I want to go go out with my friends and, and you know, go cinema and get snacks and, and go go get Nando's and he'd be like, you know what, I'll, I'll give you 10 so you can go to the cinema. I'll be like, why don't you just give me the 20? And then as, as I get older... And you're lucky with me, it was none. This is like, <laughs> as a youngest kid, as a youngest kid, you got the 10 pounds with you. <laughs> just so, I got you, know, just so you know. 
yeah like as, as, as i got older like i realized now that like, like danny was saying you know dad had to think okay how how am i gonna make the sally stretch so the whole family yeah. has what is needed do you know what mm. I mean? so he, he was doing what was right by us do you know what I mean? well i think like with mom as well i feel like i was really lucky i think as the oldest girl to get to really know mom like as a as a woman and not just as a mom mm. like particularly when I was like in my late 20s and we used to talk about like things she wanted to do and I wish she'd talk about like marriage and family and her own life and and Mm. really reflect on you know the the way her life had gone and she was like so happy with like her life really and she got to train as a teacher after she after we all were in school and she kind of did everything but in a different way around Mm. but it really made me like learn a lot about like women's lives and the choices that they make and you know about what it really is that makes you happy as a woman is like a whole range of things that you might like love being a mom and you might love being a wife but you also have other ambitions as well it's important to to know your full self as a woman so I think I I saw different sides of my mom as as I got older that I didn't see as a kid because you just like she's just your mommy when you're a little kid so that was that was really nice I would I was just a little bit just because I think like my relationship with dad especially um was a bit different in terms of the kind of whole school mm. and applying yourself to school so obviously for these three parents evening was probably a joyous time with a lot of <laughs> top positive feedback and well done you xyz mine was more max like his 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 he's, dist- he's distracting but, people in lesson yeah, he's talking hey, all the time you're distracting me bro we're in the same lesson sometimes <laughs> don't even try that remember the english Okay, for me, like, um, Pepsi was always like a dreaded time. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of naughty, I was just, I, I had to say, I didn't apply myself, I suppose. Mm. Um, you weren't naughty, I didn't have the I'm gonna play it down because I'm on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, so like I, I remember one time actually, dad, uh, one time I was, I was in school and I think um, dad was shouting at me in the car park and like a few of my friends walked past and like they were busting jokes for the next few weeks about it. Uh, my dad got a lot, like, his normal voice is very loud anyway, which everyone could hear. Um, but I remember the year after he actually took me for a walk down the road and we just had a chat about, you know, where do I actually want to be in life? Mm. What do I want to actually do in life? Um, I'm a happy to always be the person who's got potential, but that's it. Um, mm. So I think after having that actual calm conversation with my dad, I began to respect him and think, actually, he's not just um, trying to come down on me hard, but mm. he actually loves me enough to take me aside and say, I know that there's much more for you, there's better for you than just you being kicked out of class and being naughty. So um, I think growing up now, I've kind of, I know that when dad's kind of, at that level of kind of angle shouting, if I can bring him down to a calm level, we can have a chat. Mm. And I think that's where it kind of goes from being a boy to being a man and him respecting me as a man now. Um, and so, yeah, I think now, yeah, but it's much better. And I think we can all agree that we can kind of, um, I've kind of grown in our kind of understanding of dad a lot more than before. Mm. I think as we kind of get older, we understand why our parents did certain things. Obviously, mm. when, we're, when we're younger, it's not as clear because we don't get the reasoning behind it. So a lot of it's like, I can't give you this, but I can't tell you why I can't give you this because I need to make sure the house is cool or I need to make sure we've got this 
so you can't do the things that you may want to do because I need to do all of these things that that mm. need to kind of keep a he- roof over your head need to keep you know gas electric all these kind of things that we all didn't all these things that we didn't even take in take into consideration because we was out when we were younger we were out doing whatever but as we get older we start to get our own places we start to pay our own bills we start to think i can't go to this party i can't go this place because i choose say i want to eat chicken on sunday so (laughs) i want to spend the five pound on the chicken or the five pound on on the on the liquid drink over there let me let me get the chicken instead so we fully understand that um why not fully but we get it we on we get why they did what they did would you yeah. change anything about your childhood though yeah i don't think i would i don't think i would i feel that and, and i always reflect on this that actually the stuff that isn't as great in life mm. kind of is as important if you build it who you are like in the future as as the stuff that goes well mm. um so i think for me like the blessings of yeah, having these guys as, as siblings, and because we always talk about kind of having the perfect balance and of two boys, two girls. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so for, for me, I think the the main thing is just kind of yeah, feeling blessed, and and yeah, things weren't always perfect, but I think those things probably contributed to making us who we are um, today. For sure, like I don't, I don't feel like I feel like when I talk to my friends or whatever, I feel like I had the best childhood. <laughs> like, I, 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 like genuinely, and I think. Some of them had like well, had more money than us or mm. had a bigger house than us, but I think like I wouldn't trade my childhood for anyone else's mm. from what I've heard about yeah. it. Because I think, as Daniel said, like every little bit of it made it how good it like or made it what it was. Mm. Even yeah. the things that were challenging that aren't like isolated, you might think I oh, would change that, but then you don't know what else that would make different. Yeah, like I was gonna say, like just just let people know, like we did have arguments. You know what I mean? Like we fell out. Um, yeah, you know, of, sure. of, of course we did but I think again even that now especially like me, me and Joanna always reflect and think we used to like I want to say hey but we didn't I like think he almost no, did no. it was almost he used to bully me <laughs> <laughs> the boys bullied me the boys bullied me who bullied you Sal? who bullied you? the boys Oh wow! Okay, so we can ask that so, about this. But you one time I fought back and I beat you up my flip flops, and that's when it ended. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Now we look back at that now and think. Now look how close we are, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. So, like, even that we can look back and reflect and think. Look how far we've come. Uh, whereas the people who are grown, and they're still holding on to the stuff they had years ago, mm. and haven't been able to kind of have that chance to talk, reflect forgiveness and all that kind of stuff and they're still mm. in that so yeah man we're lucky because things could have been things could be worse <laughs> and a large a large part of that is down to the the house that your parents built for you guys in terms of love and those types of things where mm. you don't feel like if i argue with my sibling today it's gonna last for a significant part of like years months yeah. however long you yeah, kind of just like exactly and especially yeah. when there's four people in well six people in the house you kind of can't get away from it it's always this like yeah. once you get hit with the flip flop, it's kind of like I still gotta see you <laughs> at breakfast. You get me? It's like I can't go nowhere. It's um, true. So that's a that's a great thing to to tell people that even though you guys grew up and you're close and those types of things, there were times where you had arguments. There were times mm. where you disagreed. However, you came through it, and you're just like, listen, it's really it's us six. It's us four as siblings, but it's us six as a family. So, like, Hannah said, like, these are your best friends. At the end of the day, these are the people you, you speak to about 
practically anything, can it? So I hear that. But you guys grow older and you go into your different careers. So individually, I'm going to start from oldest to youngest. What's your career defining moments so far and mm. why? I mean, I think probably one of the, one of the big mo- moments for me has been, was taking the job that I have now mm. because, so I was previously working as a community organizer and then I was approached to apply for this job teaching theology when I was doing my PhD in theology. And I feel like it was a big moment for me because of the whole, I didn't think I had what it took to do the job. Mm-hmm. And it, it, although they had asked me to apply for it, which was an indication that they wanted me to have the job, I think I was still feeling like, I'm really qualified for this. It was a big jump into a different kind of work altogether. And it was like, it was a big risk. It was either going to go really well and I was going to rise to the challenge or I was going to flop and have to go back to my old job. Mm-hmm. And I think like in that moment, it was like that feeling I had inside of, of, of God speaking to me and a mixture of my intuition as well. I think just being like, like in life, you have to take the, the risk. You have to take the, the, like go for it. Like what's the worst that can happen? And sometimes when you're like thinking, oh, do I have what it takes? Do I not have what it takes? Like just go for it and see how it like how it works out Mm. and I think it was a big thing for me because I think confidence and imposter syndrome has been a thing that I think I've dealt with and I will talk about that probably yeah we're Um, coming on to that (laughs) but it was it was a big thing for me to take the risk Mm. and it's definitely paid off but it was like a defining moment for me I think okay yeah so so saying my kind of career defining moments have always been kind of knowing when to move so, so there have always been situations, I think, in all the places I've worked, where I've kind of got to a situation where either I'm not being challenged or the work I'm doing, uh, or I'm not maybe getting the recognition for some of the work I'm doing, or I'm just in a situation where I'm just not enjoying it. Um, and we're conscious that actually a lot of people might not have that ability to be like, oh, I want to change my working days or, or change my role or look for other things. But actually it kind of felt like I was able to, to do that. So, so in one of my workplaces, for me, that looked like going, so, so I moved from going full-time to working for them kind of three days and working somewhere else for two days, mm-hmm. just so I could change up my week and get new skills elsewhere. Um, for my current employers, it meant leaving one particular project and being able to kind of get into other things that I thought were, were more aligned with some of my interests. So, so I think it, so, so I think there's a thing about being confident of, enough to be like, yeah, this current situation isn't working. Mm. I need to try to do something to to make it change. I think for me, I'm probably in that creative funny moment now. Um, I feel like all the previous roles I've had, whether it was um, working as a pastoral manager, working um, in the council, um, working for Princess Trust, helping people get into work, I feel like everything has led me to where I am now. Um, and so I think all those different experiences and roles um, have really helped me get to this point. So I feel like, um, you know, I, I was saying around New Year's where like kind of um, for us as a family, we go around the table, we talk about, you know, what we've learned from the year and what we're kind of going into. Um, and I think for me, one of the things was leaving a job that I felt I was quite comfortable in to being exposed kind of into a more challenging role mm-hmm. um, and kind of like knowing that I'm going to have to literally kind of dig deep into kind of everything like all all the best of me really to be able to do well in this job um and 
so far it has been challenging. Um, I, I kind of had to go on walks a few times when it gets a bit too much. But I come back, I breathe, I start again. Mm. Um, and I think for me, I kind of need that to be able to um, get to that next level, really. Um, because I feel it's very easy to kind of be in jobs that you're flying at and you're not going to grow that way. So I think um, being, being, being exposed, being um, kind of in this role has really kind of changed me. Um, in 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 a great way, and who knows where, where this is going to lead me? But I feel like I'm definitely in this uh, career defining moment now. Yeah, I'd say for me, um, I think it would be leaving KPMG, and um, that's the place where I trained as an accountant. I started there at 18, and we had five. I had over five years there of mm. working, studying, etc. And I did get really used to it, and. I felt like this is somewhere where I could just keep going, you know, kind of go through the motion, work my way up if I want to. But deep down, I knew that like I wasn't really enjoying the work. I wasn't really enjoying doing audit work. Um, but there was still that thing of, should I just stay and do what's easy? But in the end, I decided, no, like, you know, if you have one life and, you know, in your career, you have to go the way that, that you're led to in terms of, what you actually want to do in your career. Mm. So I decided to just take the leap and I had no idea what <laughs> my next job was going to be like. Do you know what I mean? I was looking for roles thinking, I don't even know, like, what if I prefer audit more? But I just knew that I wasn't enjoying that. So I decided to take the leap and start a completely different job, still in finance, but completely different to audit. And, and I can definitely say it was a good choice because I feel like I'm learning so many more new skills and mm. um, that is really going to help me propel my career even further so that's the yeah, word. word joanna that's the <laughs> word she took the leap still she took the leap. <laughs> what i'm hearing from a lot of well from all four of you is taking that leap as you said is making that decision that i'm going to move into this thing that may seem like it's it's far away or not for me and you just go for it you're just like i have to i have to take this leap because if i don't take this kind of risk then I could regret it or I could just be like stuck in a place where I don't want to be, similar to kind of what Joe was saying about um, KPMG. Now, as black professionals, there's a thing that I think we suffer from, which Selena touched about, which is um, imposter syndrome. All five of us have been in an environment where sometimes we're the only black person within our team, the only black person within a five mile radius, like literally in terms of like where we're working. Um, so we do take on this imposter syndrome. How have you guys dealt with that? And how have you over or tried to, or still overcome that? I mean, for me, I feel like my imposter syndrome was very extreme because I literally at the age of 17, I'd, I'd spent my whole life in Birmingham, practically in Hansworth, let's mm. be real. <laughs> um, like I didn't even take trains out to go anywhere. There was no need. Everyone, everything that I knew was was here. Mm. And then at the age of seventeen, I decided to apply to KPMG in London, of all places, which I hadn't even been to. Mm. Um, but I just felt led to do that. And I literally at seventeen, I interviewed for it. I got it, which I couldn't believe. And next thing, I was off to London. And literally, it was two months from like leaving um, school to then going down for my induction it was from june to august it was two months that's crazy and literally oh. i stepped into london 
And I just remember going up these massive escalators into Canary Wharf, all these massive high-rise buildings. I was just looking around me like, am I really here? Like, is this where I'm actually going to work? And when I walked into that building, I can tell you, I just felt like I don't belong here. Mm. I felt like, have I made a mistake? Can I do this? But there was that quiet voice that God, you know when you just feel the Holy Spirit saying to you, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Like, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And I just, I just went into that building and to be honest I still found it very difficult I still had that feeling of not only being like young I was 18 when I started on top of that um being working class as well because a lot of the other people who were on my course even though they were my age a lot of them went to private school they were used to these kind of environments they'd even been to KPMG before for visits and things like that mm. you know what I mean this was completely new to me so it was very difficult um, you know, a lot of the time, sometimes I felt like even if I had something to say at work, I'd, I'd second guess myself a lot and think that, no, I probably don't have this right. If they haven't said it, then I can't be right. Let me keep quiet. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it took a long time. If I'm, if I'm honest with you, I'm not 100% over that. But what mm. I can say is that um, I think over time, recognising that I am good at my job, I am getting through these exams, I am as capable as anybody else in this job and on this course. And if I have an opinion, I need to speak up and, and give that opinion. And I think sometimes it, it takes that. And sometimes it, it takes prayer as well, you know, and God will speak to you as well and, and really reaffirm you. Um, but yeah, it is something that, that I still struggle with sometimes, I must admit. That's really good, Joe. Mm. I agree. Like, I think... I feel like imposter syndrome was first spoken about in regards to women in the workplace mm. because I've been in, in male environments. And it's definitely true, I think, on a race level. So I think as a woman who's black and also from like a working class background, you've got like three levels of like imposter syndrome to overcome when you're working in environments that are mainly dominated by white men who are middle class. And I think I've always worked in spaces where that's been the case. Um, where I've been one of the only or one of the few black people, one of the only or few black women, and definitely probably on a, on a working class basis as well. But I think Joe is really right. Like, I think learning to to speak to yourself, like I practice self-talk regularly because mm. I also am not over it. And I, when I'm having a thought, of, I'm not going to bother saying that. Now I will say your voice is very, very important, especially when there's only one or two of you in the room. Mm. Like you, your voice carries you know, the voices of all the other women and men who look like you in the room when you speak. And I feel like it was Oprah who said something about this, that when she goes into a room, she brings with her all of her ancestors, all of her family, all of the black people that she hasn't ever even known who she's representing when she's in a particular space. Like you carry that with you when you're in a room. And I think that then you, that reminds me that my voice really matters when I'm tempted to think, oh, I'm not going to say something because maybe they won't understand or maybe they won't value what I have to say. Mm. I think Joe's really right. Like, I, I convince myself that my voice matters because some people automatically think that and talk all the time because they're convinced their voice matters. Just chat, but then chat others him. of us, yeah, like others of us who have a lot of valuable things to say, second guess ourselves, and then the room is robbed of, what our, of our wisdom and experience. Mm. 100, 100%, 100%. Yeah, I think, like, even for me, who's kind of in an environment where I'm working in that environment of kind of crime reduction, 
um, you know, and I'm, I'm from Hansworth. Um, and like even, even when that young man died um, on Thursday afternoon, I did mm. hardly believe. Like I was doing work around it, but I hadn't even kind of deep like, yo, this is my neighborhood. And it's like, I've got my professional hat on and people are kind of wanting to kind of talk work speak. But I'm like, have you even considered how this is affecting me? Mm. As a black man from here, this is a young black man, 15 years old, like he's not going to take another breath. And I'm like, I then need to kind of, kind of take a step back and think, um, I need to share my opinions from um, Matt Stone, not Matt Stone, the community navigator of the VRU. Um, and so at times you kind of do need to kind of, as the girls have said, to allow your voice to be heard because in some situations it's even more important than those who can't relate or who can't speak on something because they've not experienced it. Um, so, yeah. Dan, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I think just to kind of agree with what um, people have said. Um, and I think probably like, like Joe, I think my uh, journey pretty much began at a similar age in terms of being 18 and going off to, to uni mm. and that kind of being a, a different experience from like a kind of cultural perspective in particular. Um, but, but I think I probably my experience has probably been in terms of getting through it has been what Sal reflected on in terms of you actually just reflecting and getting used to having your voice in those environments. Um, so I think one of the tools that really helped me was was coaching. Um, mm. So actually, I, I had a coach who was helping me to think through some of those challenges in terms of why I was just unable to kind of be myself in some of those environments. Mm. And so then reflecting on my thought processes going into... Because I think I particularly had challenges around kind of meetings where you kind of be in a room full of people who are mainly kind of like older, middle-class white, mm. and then for me to then begin to speak in that environment, I'd, I'd mm -hmm. second-guess myself or just wasn't as clear or as confident as I knew I could be. Mm -hmm. um, so then I did some reflection as to why I was feeling that way and really began to understand some of those things around uh, some of those fears and second-guessing thoughts stopping me from speaking. But, mm -hmm. then once I'd, but then once I did prepare and speak, actually it became easier and those fears that really had no basis then began to, to disappear and I, mm -hmm. and I then became more confident doing it. Um, so so I, think, I think it just is a case of uh, really making yourself do it until it becomes comfortable. I think one of the things that we have to remember as well when we're in these places and we do feel that imposter syndrome is that we're in a position that a lot of people that we know may never be in or the person coming up behind us may be reliant unknowingly to them on how we do in the, in the job and that also can be a burden on top of us as well because we feel like we're fighting against so much in a workplace and some people who we work with will never know how much we're dealing with in our headspace mm. in this job, in this role, to make sure that, listen, if there's another person of, of my complexion who applies for a job that I leave, I, I have to do a great job. So I'm not just thinking about me. I'm thinking about the person coming after me. And then I'm thinking about if I move into her next role, how do I manage that team? So anyone who comes into that team, regardless of colour or or race or whatever feels comfortable with me as a manager like there's so many things oh. we think about on top of the work and, on top yeah, of yeah. making yeah. sure that we we complete everything to an excellent level oh. you guys kind of gave some tips in how to kind of overcome it but if you used to give one tip each of you to how to to combat imposter syndrome 
what would it be? Just one tip. So, so I think I think my tip has been uh, preparation. So mm. kind of prepare as much as you can until it beco- until it starts to feel natural. Yeah, I think my tip. I don't know where I heard this, but I started practicing this. Is speaking first. Mm. So if like I've been, I was in a talk once with this well, really well known academic, and it was like question and answer time. And I thought before I let my brain catch up with me and tell me that my question is going to be stupid or my comments not going to be like important, let me put on my hand now. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and the guy, the moderator saw my hand and wrote my name down to kind of say he would ask me next. Mm. And it was like a, to, to kind of trick myself out of giving myself time to talk myself out of it. So just go for it before your, your brain has a chance to <laughs> catch yeah. up. But obviously also say something good, prepare like Daniel said. But well, do you know how quick we are to kind of, before you go, Matt, you know how quick we are to talk ourselves out of these questions where we're already in a position which we're already qualified for. Do you wow. know how quickly we are to say, you know what, you can't, you can't ask that because even though someone's hired you based on your qualification and your experience, you can't ask a question which comes with the qualification and experience yeah. that you already have. Yeah, yeah. We talk ourselves out of it so many times because we're like, ah, oh, if I say too much, I might be seen as the the disruptive one or the one who is trying to make things better is, is my internal thought but to mm-hmm. them it's like oh he's, he's always questioning stuff or she's always saying this or oh i'm not too sure do i really want to it's all of those kind of things that we have in our brain and i don't and what yeah. i'm trying to make sure that comes through is that people need to understand that so much goes on in our head sometimes just to ask one question well and on top of that i was thinking actually um there's like times where like you're thinking about the tone of what you're, what you're asking, asking something or answering something. And it's like, I don't want to come across as too aggressive or, you know, um, I don't want to come across as if I'm causing trouble. Um, so when I ask a question, my voice is high and it's like, you know, in my head, I'm angry. We love um, it's true. It, it's mad. So like, I think like one of my tips would be if it's possible to have some kind of mentor um, who is in a position that you want to be in like five years, 10 years mm. and almost try and learn kind of tips from them. So similar to what Daniel was saying about he had a coach, I would love to kind of have a coach, someone who is at a position that I want to be in and be like, yo, I've got this meeting or I'm doing this um, and I'm just not really sure if I'm the right person for it. And that person can affirm and kind of almost give you the confidence to go on and do that mm. but I feel like sometimes we don't have if if, if if our parents haven't been in positions like we are in or they don't understand what it is to kind of maybe have the, the same pressures mm. then maybe our, our parents or those around us probably aren't the people that we can go to but if you can find that person um whether they're whether they're of the same race or not um preferably if they know your background and understand you as a person that's probably better so if you can find someone like that I would definitely say to invest in that um, because the reward would be great. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well, especially because I think that in the fields that we're in, we don't see a lot of people that look like us in senior positions to mm. look up to. And I think that even adds to the imposter syndrome, that feeling of, okay, there's no one else here that looks like me that's in a senior position. So can I get that promotion? Mm. You know, should, should I speak up about, about this thing? And it, it's funny because I feel a lot of the time there's at work I've noticed there's some people that are the ones that speak up the most and they don't even have like 
the qualification. No substance, no substance that, to what they're yeah. saying. Yeah, but, but sometimes it's the way that they speak, especially sometimes some middle-class mm. people, you know, the private school people, and the way they talk, they sound like they're not what they're talking about. Until after the meeting, you're thinking, but that don't make sense. Do you know what I mean? But you and I, but you and I will actually have thought something through logically. Mm. We've put our experience and our qualifications into um, the way that, that we're thinking about it, but then we'll still hold back. But I do think that one, one tip that I would give is um it's kind of like what Celine was saying about about reaffirming yourself and saying to yourself okay you know what I have these qualifications mm. I've interviewed for that this job I, I I went through three interview processes and I got this job and and I'm qualified to speak up and I deserve to be here so yeah just really reaffirming yourself in that way yeah I think that's great what you guys have said and I know people will be inspired by that um in terms of like dealing with it especially in this time that we're in now where yeah. it's, it's it's much harder for people to to maintain and stay in jobs and people are on zoom calls with do-rag and everything like that and feeling like they can't really show their face it's, it's little things like that where they're just like i can't do you know what i mean it's little things so i think that's good um so you guys grow old we were laughing about that. would you we were laughing about like as black women if you're not prepared to show your, yourself on zoom that white women don't understand yeah like you can't just take a pony and shake your hair and go on the Zoom call. <laughs> if they suddenly say, oh, the camera's on, you have to like put, take out your plaques, mm. you know, just... do the whole thing. And <laughs> the wig's not laid and, and they're saying, yeah, I mean, oh, just... oh, Joanna, do you mind putting them on your, on your camera, please? Just, you know, if you don't get a baby hair, it's flowing out of the, out of the right. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a mess. What? It's a mess. Ridiculous. It's actually ridiculous. But it's all those kind of things where it's like, then you feel like uh, the whole imposter syndrome thing, it all, it all adds up. It all has little mm. elements to it that, that sometimes even moving outside of the office, it still affects us. So I think it's definitely good that we're, we're able to speak on that. As you guys have now got older, the sad passing of your mother happened it's up to you how much detail you want to go into so that's why i'm kind of leaving mm. it as open as possible i'm not you know i'm not adding any kind of things on top but explain the kind of feelings before and then feelings going through that that grief essentially yeah um i mean yeah i think anywhere you experience loss it's going to be tough i mean even like last week i was speaking to, to one of my friends who his mom passed away mm. just just like unexpectedly and if you just like she had no underlying health issues, it wasn't COVID related, and she passed. And so there's there's a hurt of of that. I mean, our experience was that our our mom had had cancer, so it's a kind of long term illness, um, which kind of took place over a number of years. Mm. Um, and and so that's kind of is a very different type of loss. But in many but in many ways, it was just so difficult to kind of see someone who you loved just kind of. Um, yeah, have to go through that. Have to mm -hmm. go through that that pain, really, um, that physical pain, and mm -hmm. the emotional pain and strain associated with it. Um, and so, so that was hard to kind of see, just the the effect that cancer had, especially on on her her physical body. Mm -hmm. um, but but I always say that one amazing thing about my mom in particular was just how selfless she remained through like that whole period, where sometimes for people who are who are kind of suffering in that way like everything becomes about them and they might lash out in different ways whereas for her she was just cared so much around about everyone else and how mm. everyone else was doing 
like even in the hospital she was kind of always talking about other people who were in the hospital and nurses mm. and mm. it's just uh, just a, just an incredible woman just in terms of just her her heart really um so, so so i think as a family it was hard kind of going through that period of actually just seeing her um yeah kind of deteriorate in different ways and then that kind of moment comes and i think for, for all of us it was like even though we saw the signs, it was still unexpected mm-hmm. where we're speaking to, we're speaking to, to doctors and they were kind of saying, you know, it might be, we might still have months, um, if not over a year or whatever. Mm. And then, and then I remember I was, I was at home with, with Matthew and my dad and we kind of got a phone call from the hospital telling us to kind of go there as, as soon as possible. Mm. Um, so, so we, we, so we got there and, and then it's just that, that it's that, just that kind of, it just hits you, just the reality of it really. Um, and then the strangest thing after that is, after having somebody who's been such a huge part of your life, who you've done everything with, for mm. there just to be a cut in the relationship, and mm. you can't continue conversations or share anything further about your life, and for that just to be that hard cut and just that's it, and the person's gone, mm. that is just, for me, what has been the most difficult thing yeah. about the loss, and then the grief is then in many ways coming to terms with with that being being life and the fact that your life continues but it will continue without having the physical person there i mean obviously mm. we still have memories and her voice and and things that we'll, we'll refer back to but just not being able to travel life and do that journey with her i think is is a, is a huge loss mm. that's it like i think for me it was that shock to the system of mom's gone now and that's it and you're like like for me my brain could not get over my head around the idea that mom was gone mm. like I couldn't because you can't conceive of it you grow in your mother's womb you live your whole life with your mom and then suddenly it's like that the person's gone now and you're supposed to just keep on living and I remember like the morning after like looking outside and thinking the sun's risen and the birds are outside of the trees are there mm. and the world's going on like nothing's happened because you kind of think the whole universe should stop now because this huge thing has happened, but it's like everything carries on. But I, I think like for me, I had I had been seeing a therapist in London. When I, I, me and Joe were living in London at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd been seeing a therapist from the January just to come to terms with mom being so ill because it was just a heartbreaking, as Daniel said, to see somebody who you love on and off chemotherapy for five years. Like me, we were lucky that me and Joe went to Paris with mom on a girl's trip, like when she could get on the train. And that was like a memory we'll always have. But I think to see somebody you love suffering like that and to be trying your best to care for them, but you can't stop it. You know, you have to come to terms with what's happening. And I was in therapy just, just working through all of the emotions of that. So when mom passed, I had that to rely on because I, I felt like my whole the ground had just completely been ripped out from under me when mum passed. And I'd been coming to terms with it from before, Mm. which was really helpful. I'd accepted that mum was going to die before she died. I'd accepted that because I mentally had to start to come to terms with that so that I wouldn't be like, just lose my mind when it actually happened. And that really helped me. Mm. Um, Although for some people they were like, I think almost fighting the idea that that was what was going to happen. But for me, it was helpful to accept it. And then just to like begin to process the feelings with my therapist. Talk, I had a, a, one of my best friends who had lost her dad a few couple of years before. So she was just amazing for walking me through the feelings of that. Mm. Um, 
and just like crying when you need to cry. I mean, I, the amount of tears I've shed on trains, on tubes, like in London, going to work on a Monday, crying my eyes out on the way to work, having to teach a class, holding it down, going to the toilet at lunchtime, crying my eyes out again. Mm. But for me, I needed to be working to not be consumed by the by the grief and by everything. Because I, I think I would have, I know myself, I think I would have entered a very dark place mm. if I hadn't have had a work that was meaningful for me to get back to and my friends. Yeah, I think for me, being the youngest, I think I was about 17 when mum was first diagnosed. And I think that I kind of had told myself that she'd be fine. Mm. Like I kind of, I kind of saw it like, okay, people have cancer and then they can go through chemotherapy that makes them get better and then you know things just go up coming back to normal i didn't really accept at that point that this could happen and i don't think that my parents really wanted to tell me the truth that this type of cancer that she had it meant that eventually she would die um and i think that when i came to that um, realization later on when things started to get worse it was just, it just absolutely crushed me. And I think that, uh, but I think from that point, similar to Selena, I didn't go to therapy, but I started to like sort of play around in my head, her dying and mm. how that would be and how I would sort of cope in my mind. And I sort of did that as a coping mechanism to help me for when it actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, so then, but I still feel that when it did happen, it, it still didn't really prepare me for that blow. Mm. You know, when, 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 cause I was out that night and when I came home and poor Selena had to wait there, she needed to come home to tell me and nothing could really prepare me for that moment. It just, yeah, it was just mm. heartbreaking. That's all I can say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, um, everything that's been said, I can definitely conquer with, I think. Similar to Joanna, I didn't really, um, kind of just like being me, I kind of just thought, it's, I'm going to go through this and then it's going to come out and we're going to be a six again. Mm. Um, but even with work, like I didn't tell work that mum was ill till the week before she passed away. Um, and it was only because my manager kind of saw that I looked shattered because eventually mum had to come back here. We had a bed and mum's room was downstairs. And mm. then um, we, had to, we had to sleep with the door open so that if she kind of rang this bell or called off we would come down because it meant that we need to change position um i way she was sleeping or she needed water or something so kind of having kind of like restless sleeps for quite a few weeks meant that work was always secondary anyway mm. um so i had that burden going to work um and obviously the job at the, that time was working for the teachers truck so i was doing like presentations, I was um, kind of managing projects and young people. We have, you're always giving out. And so I eventually would just kind of shut down and the manager was like, Matt, we need to have a chat. I told her and then we were able to kind of change the diary a little bit. But then the week after mum had passed, so kind of even like friends, I didn't really tell many friends that mum was ill. Um, some of them like yourself knew. Um, I, I was really key, like before, during and afterwards. Um, but I think, yeah, it was such a long journey. And then I think having it and then relapsing 
and then it attacking Haven worse. Mm. Um, so mum had um, myeloma, which was uh, cancer of the bone. Mm. Um, so it affected her bones. Um, so like she was weak anyway. Um, and then as Daniel said, to see the physical, um, like mum herself, like kind of looking weaker, not being able to speak. Mum was a very like happy, joyful, bubbly person. So to see all that draining out of her and seeing that physically was just heartbreaking. Was heartbreaking, man. Mm. How did that? How did the passing of your mother, who I call Mum Mama Stone, <laughs> how did that change the dynamic of the six going to a five? I mean, that was the hardest thing. Sorry, Matt. No, go, 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 go. That was the hardest thing. Was I remember when we. Mum passed in the end of November. We had the funeral and we went away for like a week to some countryside place. Oh, man. And I remember the first time we went out to eat and there were six chairs at the table. Mm. And I almost, I couldn't help with it. I remember yeah. just being like, we said table of five, why is there six chairs? And of course she don't know why I'm, yeah. why I'm like feeling it in my chest. But it was just suddenly you're, you're realising... We don't fit neatly on a table now. And it's a very small thing, but it just triggered, everything was triggering me, to be honest. Mm. But that was a moment of like, this is actually yeah. horrendous. So it, it ranges from those small adjustments to having one parent and being like, I have one parent now, not two. Mm. And, and because mum was like the center of so, so much of our family's yeah. life and yeah. like the life and soul of the family, yeah. like literally the life and soul of the family spiritually in terms of joy affirmation nurturing she was like the anchor for all of us including my dad mm. to use that person it's just like what does it even mean for the stones to be the stones now yeah. after mom and i think i think we've all just been trying up till today we're still figuring that out you know like we're used to we do our things as the four and it would always be mom and dad we can just go off now and leave mom and dad mm to do their thing and we'll do our thing and now it's like oh but dad's going to be on his own if it's just us four so it's like having to think about all those little things it's a whole different thought yeah. process it's a whole different thing yeah man yeah man yeah, man. Um, yeah. Some, someone else be go on you okay so I'm going to burst the tears so okay do, do, you, should, do you want me to shall I move on to the next question shall, shall, I, shall I do that I think it's our um, Sal has said it still. Okay. I feel proud of myself. I'm doing well. No, I'm so <laughs> proud. You know what? This is this is like process. I feel like the third year anniversary happened. I feel like I was a different person. And someone had said to me like the first two years mm. of a write off, and then you start to be able to cope better with the memories. And I think that's definitely been my experience. Yeah, because you remember the second year. Second, the se the second anniversary, it felt like the day she died. Like, oh, wow. we just like we're back to square one. I know. When we her hands and it was raining. And I was just, my oh, face was wet and it wasn't the rain. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to drop to the ground as if I just found out. I thought I was going to die. Oh, yeah, I'm not being dramatic. Yeah. But, it, but it is cycles. And mm. this is the thing like, everything else in life, it's like a process. Like, you start here and you move there. But someone said to me, like, grief is cycles. You kind of go around in a circle and you think you've processed it now, but you actually go around. And each time that like, you are healing slowly, but you can't always notice it. Mm, yeah. And I, I think, you know what, like what really stands out for me is just how significant mum is in terms of 
the the the, the thoughts, the decisions that I make. Yeah. Like, what would mom do in the situation? Mm-hmm. Like, um, mom would be gracious, mom would be loving, um, she would be patient, you know those things. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. kind of like I always keep it in mind. Like, if I want to snap someone's head off, what what, what would mom do? Mm-hmm. Like, how would mom deal with this person in the yeah. situation? And it just keeps me grounded. So even though mom's not here physically, mm-hmm. spirit, like her life and what she has been to us still lives on. It still lives on. And, and mom, mom would be so proud just to know, like, everything that we're doing. And the fact that we've, we've, we've not gone off the rails, um, that we're doing what we're doing, that we're, we're giving back. Because mom was all about service. Mm-hmm. Every, everything my mom did was about service. So how was your faith impacted by the passing of your mother? Oi. The reason why I ask this question is because people have passed, people have lost that I know, have lost their um, parents before and their faith just kicks into overdrive. That's some people. But then you've got some people who are just like, why? Are me and God even? You understand? So that's that's why I asked yeah. this question. So good question. Carry on, story. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think for me, I'm gonna keep this brief because when I thought about this, I was like, this could go off in so many different mm-hmm. avenues, angles. So I think for me, like leading up to mom's passing, anyway, mm. I think um, like the caring of mom was the main thing. So even Sunday's church wasn't a priority. Mm. It was okay what like um what time can can i go see mom um if it's a sunday if mom's at home like we're caring for mom so we can't be going to church so um and then because i wasn't communicating how things were going with people like in terms of you know pe- me me being accountable none of that was happening i was just trying to survive <laughs> i was trying to survive so um you know did devotion time weren't really happening I was praying, of course I was praying because my mum's ill, so that was <laughs> happening. Um, and then I think leading up to it um, as well, I think what what didn't help was, okay, so God's cool, you know. Me and God, me and Jesus. <laughs> that's a God's, God's cool, you know. God's cool, God's cool. You know? Me and Jesus are blessed, yeah. yeah. But what it is, when so-called God's people start to talk, yeah, mm. um, I didn't separate those people with God. I kind of put them both together. Okay, yeah. So those people's opinions and what they thought, you put exactly. that you put that on God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. When I spent that house, mm. because that isn't God or that ain't God's fault. So when people were saying, yeah, man, you know, it's going to get better. You know, I, I kind of saw this um, like vision or uh, I, I, I kind of dreamed this mm. and like your mum was better. She was running, she was running in the field. Right, okay. Like I've never seen mum run. Well, like my mum used to run a little bit, but what, what, yeah. Um. So then when I heard those things, I kind of naively, or not even that naive. Like in that time, anything that's hopeful, mm. anything that sounds like hope, you're gonna jump on. You're gonna hold on to. So um, hearing all that, and then obviously mum passing, I'm like, obviously I didn't go call those people up. So yo, <laughs> so that dream you had, what's that about? It was mm. kind of like, okay, guys, let me down. Mm. Um. So then, it it took me it took me a good probably year and a half, two years, 
to realize that um, I had to then separate those two again and actually take God, take Christ as he is, like all perfect, like um, his words not in vain and just kind of almost like start begin that healing process. Um, but then also forgive those people who had best intentions but kind of didn't give me what what I needed or didn't give me the reality that I needed. Mm. Um, and so it did take me a while to break that. Um, and I'm probably only just in the last year kind of getting back to a point of, okay, I need to serve again or, or, or like, what is my purpose in Christ again mm. and all those things. So that's kind of my journey in a snapshot, mm. really. And, and I think just to kind of build on what, what uh, Matt was saying, because um, I think you're right, I think sometimes Christians don't help each other with, with mm. kind of difficult times in life. Um, because the reality is, is that loss and death is inevitable. It probably is probably the only guaranteed thing about mm. life. That actually, if you're alive, then one day like, you, you won't be. Um, and so how we kind of prepare each other for that, I think is really important. And I think there was like a narrative, that narrative around everything happening for, for a reason, mm. which can be like problematic. Because <laughs> um, then so, you start so to I question, think, then you start to question, what's the reason? What yeah, is the reason? Yeah, like, so, I need to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think for, for me, like there's, there's a difference between like cause and effect and, and everything happening for like a reason. Mm. And what I mean by that is like, I don't know, someone like punches me in my head like my, my head hurts because somebody's punched me and that's the mm. cause and effect. Like reason would say, somebody seeking to get meaning from that would say, oh, you needed to get punched in your head so next time you duck. So they're trying to add an additional level of meaning onto mm. something that's effect. So, so for me, like cancer and things like that are primarily something that's driven by cause and effect. So and we don't fully understand those causes yet. So it could be chemicals, the food we eat, in plastics, whatever it is. Mm. Um, all of those things that for me are the, are the causes of ill health. Um, so, so, but then trying to put that additional bit of meaning to say, oh, it's happening to this particular person for this, I think is then where my issues come I just don't know how you kind of connect those two. As, as Matt said, unless you've had a prophetic dream or insight into why it's happened at that moment. So, so I think I think we just need to support each other better. Like if there's stuff that you, that you know, mm. help that person, but if you're just, offering empty words without substance then sometimes that can cause problems mm. ladies I, I have so many things to say my brain's in overload no. like, this is where i live yeah this is i have to write on this at some point in the future so i've got a thousand mm. thoughts about this um, so maybe it's best that i go and then i'll remember joanna had to talk and stop talking <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I took I took personal offense. I felt personally betrayed by God mm. when this happened on a deeply personal level because I feel like me and Jesus have been brethren from day one. I... So for me, it was like, mm. I'm sorry, who are, who are you again? I don't even understand how you let this happen. Like when you, and simply on the level of there are like prayers and then there are prayers, do you know what I mean? There's like, you know, prayer for a job, you know, Prayer for partner, mm. prayer for, you know, some little, little thing. And then there's prayers. There's like, this is the only time in my life that this is going to matter. Mm. This is the only time at which you can answer me or not. 
there's no God's timing. There's no, it's, it's now no. on the knees type thing, it's you know. Now and that's it. So, yeah. and you don't have a lot of those moments, mm. you know, you don't have a lot of those kind of prayers. But for me, for us, I feel like this was one of those moments at which this was a now or never kind of prayer moment. And God never did the thing. Mm. So by the time this happened, me and God got problems upon problems. Mm. I would say my faith died the day mom died, mm. although I didn't know it at the time. I would say I had to go through a process of reconstructing my whole, my whole faith system mm. from, the, from scratch. Um, and the way that I imagine it is like you have a house that crumbles into pieces. Mm. And that was what my faith was like. It weren't like, you know, it's it's struggling. It's in pieces now. It's like crumbs on the floor. And I can either be in denial about that and just keep on going to church like nothing ever happened mm. and keep on singing the songs and whatever. Or I have to get to work at reconstructing something that's going to look totally different to what it looked like before. But it's going to be real. It's going to be authentic. It's going to be honest. Mm. And that, I think, is a process that I had to go on. Um, thankfully I because of because I'm a theologian I had the resources to help me to do that and so I could find you know wonderful reflections in other traditions Pentecostalism doesn't have a lot Mm. to help you see things like this but I was lucky that I had friends who had other Christian like traditions to offer to help me process this grief that I was feeling and the loss Um, but I mean it's been a reconstruction and I think for me, that's been the only way to survive has to just been to realise that my faith is going to be a lot more grey now. It's going to be a lot less black and white. Mm. The way that I used to ex- expect or demand things, I don't do that anymore. I have a kind of humility within my spirituality that I didn't have before. I don't imagine I have the answers. I don't imagine we all have the answers. I realise that there is a lot of unknown, which makes me a lot lo- less judgmental mm. about people, their life decisions, what they may or may not believe, I realise that things are a lot more complicated than we want to admit. And our desire to have neat answers often leads us to cling to things that are not actually that secure when real life actually hits. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I I think that a lot of the times we read the Bible through a lens, through a human lens, obviously, of, okay, this is what I want my life to be like. This is what I think the scripture is saying. Because, and we read it in a way of, um, you know, wanting our family to be well, you know, wanting to have, you know, wealth, um, just wanting everything to go so perfectly. But so, and sometimes I think we can read the scriptures in a way that isn't how it was written. So we can just read it and think, okay, everything we ask God for, he's just going to give it us. If someone's not well, he's going to heal them, etc. But in reality, like in this life, people do get ill, people do die. But I must admit that I grow, grow, growing up in a house, a Christian home, and you know, going to church every week, etc., and having a strong faith, mm. it did sort of make me think that okay, although mom's ill, she'll be fine. You know, we just need to pray, we just need to intercede. And so when she did die, I feel like it just hit me so hard. I felt like God let God let me down. I feel like God let my mom down because. At some points, my mom was even like saying, I don't even want to take the medication anymore. I want to leave it up to God. Like that's that's how strong my mom's faith was. Mm. Um, and so when she did die, yeah, it, it, it crushed me. It made me feel like, is God real? Is this all been a lie? But similar to what Selena said, I think it took me taking a step back and saying, okay, everything that I've learned growing up in church, I'm just going to forget it. And I'm just going to start again from scratch. And 
read the Bible how I believe God wanted it to be read rather than what I want to, what I want it to mean mm. if that makes sense mm. um so yeah so what advice would you give to someone who's experienced a similar type of loss and and grief how how would you what's one piece of advice would you each give for them and how to deal with the grief and the process i would say um i would say however you deal with it is how you deal with it i would say for us it was new so no one can tell us oh you're not doing that right or you think about this or da 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 because um we're in it like mm. and there's no like there's no practice <laughs> it's like it happened and the next day is coming and the day after that's coming um i would say for those who like to write write in your journal um write about your feelings i would say um just give 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 yourself time um i would say if you're more of a person who likes to kind of share talk to people um make sure that people if they're available um can speak to you if you're more of a kind of more introverted quiet person who just wants to have you on time go for walks have you on time um but each person processes things at a different rate at different times um what i would say i would say um yeah, I would I'll would just say take your time and do everything in your pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan. Yeah, I think just kind of yeah, I think feel feel how 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 you want to feel, I think would be my first thing. Because so my experience was I'm somebody who's <laughs> generally not that emotional. Mm-hmm. So so often people came to me, especially after mom passed, and were like you know, if you want to cry, you know, you stop. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not holding emotions. They're trying, they're trying to push like, the, the tears on your eyes. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, so, 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 yeah, yeah. So, so it's like people have their own expectations of how they thought I should be reacting and acting. Yeah. Mm. And I'm just like, I mean, there the were times I cried and there were times where I just wanted to just be on my own and just reflect and think. And so I think you just have to feel how, how you want to feel and respond mm. to that. Um, and then probably my advice then to, to everybody, even if you've not experienced grief, is, is probably just that reflection that like your loss is, is inevitable. So so then the big question is, what do you then do in response to that? And I think for me, the response has to be to really make the most out of the time we, we do have. Mm. So whether that's relationships or your own talents or your own time, I think our own mm. response has to be given that our time is limited, just making the most out of it. Joe, I would say like don't be afraid to be angry at God for a while man just (laughs) you know what I mean sometimes you just gotta be like God why did this happen you know just just let it out don't don't Mm. be afraid to to just be real with God you know why did this happen I feel you've let me down do you know what I mean because I think that you can't just carry on as if like nothing's happened if you feel let down say so but I just I do know that you that with me I've come to a place now of understanding do you know what I mean through like battling and fighting through with God um, and you know really fighting through my faith and I think that's something that you have to do um, if, if you want to really get back to a place with God where you're walking in harmony again and you know trusting him again mm. yeah 
Yeah, I agree with what everyone said. I think the most important thing is being honest. That the only way through, like, out of grief is through it. You can't avoid it. It will come back to you. It will, it will eat away at you if you don't, you know, accept it and deal with it in whatever way that have that we need to deal with it when you're ready. But at some point, you have to be able to to do what it takes to feel and process the grief. Mm-hmm. Be honest with yourself. This is not about performing for anyone else, you know, upholding traditions or saying certain things that you think people expect you to hear, particularly as a Christian. We love to do this to one another. Mm. You know, don't let the grief get you, you know, keep the faith, let the person cry. Mm. Stop telling them how to perform when they're in the middle of trauma of losing their relatives. Just let them be what they need to be right now. God isn't asking us to perform anything. God isn't asking us to put on a, on, a, on a show of being a super Christian who don't cry about their loss. Mm. Listen, do what you yep. feel it, cry what you need to do. If you reach out for help from good people, I'd say be careful about who you talk to. Some people don't have no sense. Some people want to be the counsellor, but they don't have any wisdom. Mm. So just, just be careful about that. Like, go to qualified mm-hmm. people if you need that deep. I love therapy. I will tell people therapy every time. But therapy is expensive. Maybe you've got a good pastor at your church or someone who you used to know and just do what you need to yeah, do man. to be well within yourself. Peace is the most important thing. And you and you will smile again. I never thought I'd laugh again after mom died. I never thought I would enjoy life fully. But it, it happens. You, you, you move forward and you, you learn how to hold that grief without it overshadowing everything else in your life. Mm. And you don't replace, you just adjust to what yeah, exactly. to what life has given you at the moment yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. and one thing that you touched on which i think was really good is us as some christians can be very quick to say so and so wouldn't want you to feel this way so make sure you da, 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 da. Yeah. big man it, Just stop it. relax <laughs> especially people who don't know like what matthew said was so true about crazy people saying stupid things like people who never knew my mum, you know, you know, I thought your mum would want you. You'd never even met her. And it's people that didn't know you, mum, and people who didn't know your dynamic, so they wouldn't yeah. even understand. Yeah. They don't get it. They, they weren't there. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, yeah. they were at, if they came to the funeral, they were at the back. Like it's yeah, those kind yeah. of it's those kind of people who have a lot. Like just leave it. Mm. It's just leave it. And it just, you know, you have to just say I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And, and keep it moving. Mm. Can I just say one more thing on this? And this is a shout out to you, H. I don't know if there's gonna be enough time to put it in. Please. But <laughs> Hayden, for those of you who know, when my mum passed away on the night, uh, I think I'm, I called Hayden or I messaged you, and I was like, "Yo, just let you know, mum died." And the, 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 the way that I said it, it was like it was just the most minor thing. And he was like, "Where are you? I'm coming." I was like, "Don't worry, man. It's fine." Like the, the, he was like, "Where are you? I'm coming." And Hayden came to the hospital. I don't know what time it was, but it wasn't early. It was, it was, it was one o'clock. It was one o'clock. Hayden came um, and he was just a rock. Like, he didn't say nothing mad. He didn't, he didn't like, make people know that he was there. He was just, just kind of there in the corner. But just hate being there, it just offered an, a kind of, a little bit of support. And it wasn't like we were kind of going back and forth, catching up about stuff. He was just there. He was there. He came again uh, when we had people coming over. He came again and he just, I think Selena said it, he was like, she was like, he, he just knows what to do. He's not trying to get attention. He's just there and he's consistent. Yeah. Then at the funeral, I remember when I brought down the funeral, 
and I was just standing there, just bawling. And H came up and he just gave me a hug. He didn't say anything. He just gave me a hug. So and I'm like, you, need, you don't man. even have to talk. Just be present. Yeah, present. Be there. You know what I mean? And yeah. just love. That's it. Yeah, we had people surprise us in the best way. I had friends come to the funeral and I thought, I know you work a corporate job. And you must have lied to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I had that as well. Like, yeah. I know that they never let you come out for mom's funeral, but they did what they had to do to be there. Mm. And it, it just would never be forgotten mm. because it was just what we, we just felt so supported. We really yeah. have. It is so key when you have people who just do what what is the right thing at the right time. My last question, with where you're at oh, in life oh. right now, what advice would you give to yourself? I think I would say to myself mm. um, that you should trust yourself, Selena, because you make really good decisions. You make good decisions in your personal life, in your professional life, but sometimes you get anxious or worried or second-guess yourself mm. about the decisions you're thinking of making. But you should step confidently because you've got wisdom and you know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, think my, I think my answer would probably, probably be similar. I mean, I know that probably a lot of people have found the past year really difficult mm. in terms of COVID. I think for me as somebody who kind of likes my own uh, kind of space, it's been nice kind of having time to just spend time, kind of more time, just reflecting, reading, getting to know myself even more. Mm. Um, so, so I think for me, I think my advice would be to just kind of throughout life, just continue on that path of, of righteousness in terms of just my my thinking mm. and the position on my heart because there's so much that that can kind of make us deprioritize things that we know to be right or know to be true um but i think i'd want to just tell myself to just kind of keep going mm. uh, on that path and to just keep uh, trusting my heart and my my mind um yeah i would i'll say a few things i would say you're where you're meant to be right now um i would say you're better than you think you are um, and I would say something that me and you, you love to say, H, which is enjoy the journey and enjoy the process. Yeah, I think I would say don't be afraid to take risks. Like, I feel like there's been times in my life that I have taken risks and they've always paid off, especially when I pray about it as well. Do you know what I mean? I think that's also key. Um, you know, sometimes I can sort of just rely on the fact that, okay, I've got this qualification. I've got this job, I'm set up, now I need to think, okay, what exactly do I need to do next to get here? But sometimes it's like, take a step back and actually pray, God, where do you see me going next? You know, mm. what do you have in store for me? And um, yeah, just making sure God's at the centre as well. Guys, thank you. Oh, thank so you. Much. Thank you. Thank I, I appreciate <laughs> you guys. And, uh, you already know, this, the, the levels is so high individually and as a collective shout out to Papa Stone as well but um, (laughs) just in case he does watch this I have to let him know that you know know, know Um, but yeah thank you guys thank you to Selena thank you to Dan thank you to Matthew thank you to Joanna this has been Conversation with H speaking to the amazing Stones make sure you go get Dan's book Make sure you follow Siwagwan, follow Selena on Twitter and all them kind of things. Joe, if you engaged in that, Matthew, do your thing. But yeah, <laughs> make sure you check them out. We have more content for you coming very, very soon.